Chapter Eleven of Jeremy by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: The Merry-Go-Round. One. The holidays were over. The Coles were once more back in Polchester, and the most exciting period of Jeremy's life had begun. So, at any rate, he felt it. It might be that in later years there would be new exciting events, lion-hunting, for instance, or a war, or the tracking of niggers in the heart of Africa. He would be ready for them when they came, but these last weeks before his first departure for school offered him the prospect of the first real independence of his life. There could never be anything quite like that again. Nevertheless, school seemed still a long way distant. It was only his manliness that he was realizing, and a certain impatience and restlessness that underlay everything that he did. September and October are often very lovely months in Polchester. Autumn seems to come there with a greater warmth and richness than it does elsewhere. Along all the reaches of the Pole, right down to the sea, the leaves of the woods hung with a riotous magnificence that is glorious in its recklessness the waters of that silent river are so still so glassy that the banks of gold and flaming red are reflected in all their richest colour down into the very heart of the stream and it is only when a fish jumps or a twig falls from the overhanging trees that the mirror is broken and the colours flash into ripples and shadows of white and grey the utter silence of all this world makes the cathedral town sleepy sluggish forgotten of all men as the autumn comes it seems to drowse away into winter to the tune of its cathedral bells to the scent of its burning leaves and the soft steps of its canons and clergy there is every autumn here a clerical conference and long before the appointed week begins and long after it is lawfully concluded clergymen strange clergymen with soft black hats take the town for their own gaze into martin the pastry-cooks sit in the dusk of the cathedral listening to the organ walk their heads in air their arms folded behind their backs straight up orange street as though they were scaling heaven itself stop little children pat their heads and give them pennies stand outside Poole's bookshop and delve in the twopence box for thumb-marked sermons stand gazing in learned fashion at the great west door investigating the saints and apostles portrayed thereon hurry in their best hats and coats along the close to some lady's tea-party or pass with solemn and anxious mien into the palace of the bishop himself all these things belong to autumn in polchester as jeremy very well knew but the event that marks the true beginning of the season the only way by which you may surely know that summer is over and autumn is come is pauper's fair this famous fair has been from time immemorial a noted event in glebeshire life even now when fairs have yielded to cinematographs as attractions for the people pauper's fair gives its annual excitement thirty years ago it was the greatest event of the year in polchester all our fine people of course disliked it extremely it disturbed the town for days the town rocked in the arms of crowds of drunken sailors the town gave shelter to gypsies and rogues and scoundrels the town the decent amiable happy town actually for a week or so seemed to invite the world of the blazing fire and the dancing clown no wonder that our fine people shuddered only the other day i speak now of these modern times the bishop tried to stop the whole business he wrote to the glebeshire morning news urging that pauper's fair in these days of enlightenment and culture cannot but be regretted by all those who have the healthy progress of our dear country at heart well you would be amazed at the storm that his protest raised people wrote from all over the county and there were ultimately letters from patriotic glebeshire citizens in new zealand and south africa and in polchester itself every one even those who had shuddered most at the fair's iniquities was indignant give up the fair one of the few signs left of that jolly old england whose sentiment is cherished by us whose fragments nevertheless we so readily stamp upon 
no the fair must remain and will remain i have no doubt until the very end of our national chapter nowadays it has shed very largely i am afraid the character that it gloriously maintained thirty years ago then it was really an invasion by the seafaring element of the county all the little country ports and harbours poured out their fishermen and sailors who came walking driving singing laughing swearing they filled the streets and went peering like the wildest of ancient picks into the mysterious beauties of the cathedral and late at night when the town should have slept arm in arm they went roaring past the dark windows singing their songs stamping their feet and every once and again ringing a decent doorbell for their amusement it was very seldom that any harm was done once a serious fire broke out amongst the old wooden houses down on the river and some of them were burnt to the ground a fate that no one deplored once a sailor was murdered in a drunken squabble at the dog and pilchard the wildest of the riverside hostelries and once a cannon was caught and stripped and ducked in the waters of the pole by a mob who resented his gentle appeals that they should try to prefer lemonade to gin but these were the only three catastrophes in all the history of the fair during the fair week the town sniffed of the sea of lobster and seaweed and tar and brine and all the tales of the sea that have ever been told by man were told during these days in polchester the decent people kept their doors locked their children at home and their valuables in the family safe no upper-class child in polchester so much as saw the outside of a gypsy van the dean's earnest was accustomed to boast that he had once been given a ride by a gypsy on a donkey when his nurse was not looking but no one credited the story and the details with which he supported it were feeble and unconvincing the polchester children in general were told that they would be stolen by the gypsies if they weren't careful and although some of them in extreme moments of rebellion and depression felt that the life of adventure thus offered to them might after all be more agreeable than the dreary realism of their natural days the warning may be said to have been effective no family in polchester was guarded more carefully in this matter of the pauper's fare than the cole family mr cole had an absolute horror of the fair sailors and gypsies were to him the sign and seal of utter damnation and although he tried as a christian clergyman to believe that they deserved pity because of the disadvantages under which they had from the first laboured he confessed to his intimate friends that he saw very little hope for them either in this world or the next jeremy helen and mary were during fair week kept severely within doors their exercise had to be taken in the coal garden and the farthest that they poked their noses into the town was their visit to st john's on sunday morning except on one famous occasion the fair week of jeremy's fifth year saw him writhing under a terrible attack of toothache which became after two agonized nights such a torment and distress to the whole household that he had to be conveyed to the house of mr pilter who had his torture chamber at number three market square it is true that jeremy was conveyed thither in a cab and that his pain and his darkened windows prevented him from seeing very much of the gay world nevertheless in spite of the jam-pot who guarded him like a dragon he caught a glimpse of flags a gleaming brass band and a punch and judy show and he heard the trumpets and the drum and the shouts of excited little boys and the blowing of the punch and judy pipes and he smelt roasting chestnuts bad tobacco and beer and gin he returned young as he was and reduced to a corpse-like condition by the rough but kindly intentioned services of mr pilcher with the picture of a hysterical abandoned world clearly imprinted upon his brain i want to go he said to the jam-pot you can't said she i will when i'm six said he you won't said she i will when i'm seven said he you won't said she i will when i'm eight he answered oh give over do master jeremy said she 
and now he was eight very nearly nine and going to school in a fortnight there seemed to be a touch of destiny about his prophecy two he had no intention of disobedience had he been once definitely told by someone in authority that he was not to go to the fair he would not have dreamt of going he had no intention of disobedience but he had returned from the cow farm holiday in a strange condition of mind he had found there this summer more freedom than he had been ever allowed in his life before and it had been freedom that had come not so much from any change of rules but rather from his own attitude to the family simply he had wanted to do certain things and he had done them and the family had stood aside he began to be aware that he had only to push and things gave way a dangerous knowledge and its coming marks a period in one's life he seemed too during this summer to have left his sisters definitely behind him and to stand much more alone than he had done before the only person in his world whom he felt that he would like to know better was uncle samuel and that argued on his part a certain tendency towards rebellion and individuality he was no longer rude to aunt amy although he hated her just as he had always done she did not seem any longer a question that mattered his attitude to his whole family now was independent indeed he was in reality now beginning to live his independent life he was perhaps too young to be sent off to school by himself although in those days for a boy of eight to be plunged without any help but a friendly word of warning into the stormy seas of private school life was common enough nevertheless his father conscious that the child's life had been hitherto spent almost entirely among women sent him every morning during these last weeks at home down to the curate of st martin's in the market to learn a few words of latin an easy sum or two and the rudiments of spelling this young curate the rev wilfred somerset recently of emmanuel college cambridge had but two ideas in his head the noble game of cricket and the jolly qualities of mr surtees's novels he was stout and strong red-faced and thick in the leg always smoking a large black-looking pipe and wearing trousers very short and tight he did not strike jeremy with fear but he was nevertheless an influence jeremy apparently amused him intensely he would roar with laughter at nothing at all smack his thigh and shout good for you young un whatever that might mean and jeremy gazing at him at his pipe and his trousers liking him rather but not sufficiently in awe to be really impressed would ask him questions that seemed to him perfectly simple and natural but that nevertheless amused the rev wilfred so fundamentally that he was unable to give them an intelligible answer undoubtedly this encouraged jeremy's independence he walked to and fro the curate's lodging by himself and was able to observe many interesting things on the way sometimes late in the afternoon he would have some lesson that he must take to his master who as he lodged at the bottom of orange street was a very safe and steady distance from the coals of course aunt amy objected you allow jeremy all by himself into the street at night and he's only eight really you're so strange well in the first place said mrs cole mildly it isn't night it's afternoon in the second place it's only just down the street and jeremy's most obedient always as you know amy i'm sure that mr somerset is wild said aunt amy my dear amy why you've only got to look at his face it's uh, flashy that's what i call it oh that isn't the sort of man who'll do jeremy harm said mrs cole with a mother's wisdom certainly he did jeremy no harm at all he taught him nothing not even mensa and how to spell receive and apple the only thing he did was to encourage jeremy's independence and this was done in the first place by the walks to and fro he had only been going to mr somerset's a day or two when the announcements of the fair appeared on the walls of the town he could not help but see them there was a large queue on the boarding halfway down orange street 
just opposite the doctor's a poster with a coloured picture of Woomwell's circus a fine affair with spangled ladies jumping through hoops elephants sitting on stools tigers prowling a clown cracking a whip and best of all a gentleman with an anxious face and a scanty but elegant costume balanced above a gazing multitude on a tightrope there was also a bill of the fair setting forth that there would be a cattle market races roundabout swings wrestling boxing fat women dwarfs and the two-headed giant from the caucasus during a whole week once a day jeremy read this bill from the top to the bottom at the end of the week he could repeat it all by heart he asked mr somerset whether he was going oh i shall slip along one evening i've no doubt replied that gentleman but it's a bore a whole week of it upsets one's work it needn't said jeremy if you stay indoors this amused mr somerset immensely he laughed a great deal we always have to said jeremy rather hurt we're not allowed farther than the garden ah but i'm older than you are said mr somerset it was the same with me once and what did you do did you go all the same you bet i did said the red-faced hero more intent on his reminiscences than on the effect that this might have on the morals of his pupil jeremy waited then for the parental command that was always issued it was now children you must promise me never to go outside the house this week unless you have asked permission first and then and on no account to speak to any stranger about anything whatever and then don't look out of the back windows mind from the extreme corners of the bedroom windows you could see a patch of the meadow whereon the gypsy band settled these commands had been as regular as the fair and always of course the children had promised obedience jeremy told his conscience that if this year he gave his promise he would certainly keep it he wondered at the same time whether he might not possibly manage to be out of the house when the commands were issued he formed a habit of suddenly slipping out of the room when he saw his father's mouth assuming the shape of a command he took the utmost care not to be alone with his father but he need not have been alarmed this year no command appeared perhaps mr cole thought that it was no longer necessary it was obvious that the children were not to go and they were after all old enough now to think for themselves or perhaps it was that mr cole had other things on his mind he was changing curates just then and a succession of white-faced soft-voiced and loud-booted young men were appearing at the cole's hospitable table here's this tiresome fair come round again said mrs cole wicked said aunt amy with an envious shudder satan finds work indeed in this town i don't suppose it's worse than anywhere else said mrs cole on the late afternoon of the day before the opening jeremy on his way to mr somerset's caught the tail end of Woomwell's circus procession moving in misty splendour across the market he could see but little although he stood on the pedestal of a lamp-post but britannia rocking high in the air flashing her silver sceptre in the evening air and followed by two enormous and melancholy elephants caught his gaze strains of a band lingered about him he entered mr somerset's in a frenzy of excitement but he said nothing he felt that mr somerset would laugh at him he returned to his home that night haunted by britannia he ate britannia for his supper he had britannia for his dreams and he greeted rose as britannia the next morning when she called him early upon that day there were borne into the heart of the house strains of the fair it was no use whatever to close the windows lock the doors and read divinity the strains persisted a heavenly murmur rising at moments into a muffled shriek or a jumbling shout hanging about the walls as a romantic echo dying upon the air a chastened wail no use for mr cole to say we must behave as though the fair was not for a whole week it would be there and every one knew it 
jeremy did not mean to be disobedient but after that glimpse of britannia he knew what he would do three it had at first been thought advisable that jeremy should not go to mr somerset's during fair week perhaps mr somerset could come to the coles no he was very sorry he must be in his rooms at that particular hour in case parishioners should need his advice or assistance pity for him to miss all this week especially as there will be only four days left after that i am really anxious for him to have a little grounding in latin mrs cole smiled confidently i think jeremy is to be trusted he would never do anything that you wouldn't like mr cole was not so sure he's not quite so obedient as i should wish he shows an independence however after some hesitation it was decided that jeremy might be trusted but even after that he was never put upon his honour if i don't promise i needn't mind he said to himself and waited breathlessly but nothing came only aunt amy said i hope you don't speak to little boys in the street jeremy to which he replied scornfully of course not he investigated his money-box removing the top with a tin opener he found that he had there three shillings three and a half pence a large sum and enough to give him a royal time mary caught him oh jeremy what are you doing just counting my money he said with would-be carelessness you're going to the fair she whispered breathlessly he frowned how could she know she always knew everything perhaps he whispered back but if you tell any one i'll of course i won't tell she replied deeply offended this little conversation strengthened his purpose he had not admitted to himself that he was really going now he knew wednesday would be the night on wednesday evenings his father had a service which prevented him from returning home until half-past eight he would go to somerset's at half-past four and would be expected home at half-past six there would be no real alarm about him until his father's return from church and he could therefore be sure of two hours bliss for the consequences he did not care at all he was going to do no harm to any one or anything they would be angry perhaps but that would not hurt him and in any case he was going to school next week no one at school would mind whether he had been to the fair or no he felt aloof and apart as though no one could touch him he would not have minded simply going into them all and saying i'm off to the fair the obvious drawback to that would have been that he would have been shut up in his room and then they might make him give his word he would not break any promises when wednesday came it was a lovely day out in the field just behind the coles house they were burning a huge bonfire of dead leaves at first only a heavy column of grey smoke rose then flames broke through little thin golden flames like paper then a sudden fierce red-orange shot out and went licking up into the air until it faded like tumbling water against the sunlight on the outer edge of the bonfire there was thin grey smoke through which you could see as through glass the smell was heavenly and even through closed windows the crackling of the burnt leaves could be heard the sight of the bonfire excited jeremy it seemed to him a signal of encouragement a spur to perseverance all the morning the flames crackled and the men came with wheelbarrows full of leaves and emptied them in thick heaps upon the fire at each emptying the fire would be for a moment beaten and only the white thick malicious smoke would come through then a little spit of flame another another then a thrust like a golden hand stretching out then a fine towering quivering splendour under the full noonday sun the fire was pale and so unreal weak and sickly that one was almost ashamed to look at it but as the afternoon passed it again gathered strength and with the faint dusky evening it was a giant once more you come along it said to jeremy come along come along i'm going to mr somerset's mother he said putting two exercise books and a very new and shining blue latin book together 
are you dear i suppose you're safe mrs cole asked looking through the drawing-room window oh it's all right said jeremy well i think it is said mrs cole the street seems quite empty don't speak to any odd-looking men will you oh that's all right he said again he walked down orange street his books under his arm the three shillings three and a half pence in his pocket the street was quite deserted swimming in a cold pale light the trees the houses the church the garden walls sharp and black the street dim and precipitous tumbling forward into the blue whence lights one two three now a little bunch together came pricking out the old woman opened the door when he rang mr somerset's bell master's been called away she said in her croaking voice a burial ye ain't had time to let you know tell the little gentleman he said i'm sorry all right said jeremy thank you he descended the steps then stood where he was in the street looking up and down who could deny that it was all being arranged for him he felt more than ever like god as he looked proudly about him everything served his purpose the jingling of the money in his pocket reminded him that he must waste no more time he started off even his progress through the town seemed wonderful quite unattended at last as he had always all his life longed to be so soon as he left orange street and entered the market he was caught into a great crowd it was all stirring and humming with a noise such as the bonfire had all day been making it was his first introduction to the world he had never been in a large crowd before and it is not to be denied but that his heart beat thick and his knees trembled a little but he pulled himself together who was he to be afraid but the books under his arm were a nuisance he suddenly dropped them in amongst the legs and boots of the people there were many interesting sights to be seen in the market-place but he could not stay and he found himself soon to his own surprise slipping through the people as quietly and easily as though he had done it all his days only always he kept his hand on his money lest that should be stolen and his adventure suddenly come to nothing he knew his way very well and soon he was at the end of finch street which in those days opened straight into fields and hedges even now so little has polchester grown in thirty years the fields and hedges are not very far away here there was a stile with a large wooden fence on either side of it and a red-faced man saying pay your sixpence now come along pay your sixpence now crowds of people were passing through the stile jostling one another pressing and pushing but all apparently in good temper for there was a great deal of laughter and merriment from the other side of the fence came a torrent of sound so discordant and so tumultuous that it was impossible to separate the elements of it from one another screams shrieks the bellowing of animals and the monotonous rise and fall of scraps of tune several bars of one and then bars of another and then everything lost together in the general babble and to the right of him jerry could see not very far away quiet fields with cows grazing and the dark grave wood on the horizon would he venture for a moment his heart failed him a wave of something threatening and terribly powerful seemed to come out to him through the stile and the people who were passing in looked large and fierce then he saw two small boys their whole bearing one of audacious boldness push through he was not going to be beaten he followed a man with a back like a wall one please he said come along now pay your sixpence pay your sixpence cried the man he was through he stepped at once into something that had for him all the elements of the most terrifying and enchanting of fairy tales he was planted it seems in a giant world at first he could see nothing but the high and thick bodies of the people who moved on every side of him he peered under shoulders he was lost among legs and arms he walked suddenly into waistcoat buttons and was flung thence on to walking-sticks but it was if he had known it the most magical hour of all for him to have chosen 
it was the moment when the sun sinking behind the woods and hills leaves a faint white crystal sky and a world transformed in an instant from sharp outlines and material form into coloured mist and rising vapour the fair also was transformed putting forward all its lights and becoming after the glaring tawdriness of the day a place of shadow and sudden circles of flame and dim obscurity lights even as jeremy watched sprang into the air wavered faltered hesitated then rocked into a steady glow only shifting a little with the haze on either side of him were rough wooden stalls and these were illuminated with gas which sizzled and hissed like angry snakes the stalls were covered with everything invented by man here a sweet stall with thick sticky lumps of white and green and red glass bottles of bull's-eyes and peppermints thick slabs of almond toffee and pink coconut icing boxes of round chocolate creams and sticks of licorice lumps of gingerbread with coloured pictures stuck upon them saffron buns plum cakes in glass jars and chains of little sugary biscuits hanging on long red strings there was the old clothes stall with trousers and coats and waistcoats all shabby and lanky swinging beneath the gas and piles of clothes on the boards all nondescript and unhappy and faded there was the stall with the farm implements and the medicine stall and the flower stall and the vegetable stall and many many others each place had his or her guardian vociferous red-faced screaming out the wares lowering the voice to cajole raising it again to draw back a retreating customer carrying on suddenly an intimate conversation with the next-door shopkeeper laughing quarrelling arguing to jeremy it was a world of giant heights and depths behind the stalls behind the lane down which he moved was an uncertain glory a threatening peril he fancied that strange animals moved there he thought he heard a lion roar and an elephant bellow the din of the cellars all about him made it impossible to tell what was happening beyond there only the lights and bells shouts and cries confusing smells and a great roar of distant voices he almost wished that he had not come he felt so very small and helpless he wondered whether he could find his way out again and looking back he was for a moment terrified to see that the stream of people behind him shut him in so that he could not see the stile nor the wooden barrier nor the red-faced man pushed forward he found himself at the end of the lane and standing in a semicircular space surrounded by strange-looking booths with painted pictures upon them and in front of them platforms with wooden steps running up to them then so unexpectedly that he gave a little scream a sudden roar burst out behind him he turned and indeed the world seemed to have gone mad a moment ago there had been darkness and dim shadow now suddenly there was a huge whistling tossing circle of light and flame and from the centre of this a banging brazen cymbal-clashing scream issued a scream that through its strident shrillness he recognised as a tune that he knew a tune often whistled by jim at cow farm and her golden hair was hanging down her back whence the tune came he could not tell from the very belly of the flaming monster it seemed but as he watched he saw that the huge circle whirled ever faster and faster and that up and down on the flame of it coloured horses rose and fell vanishing from light to darkness from darkness to light and seeming of their own free will and motion to dance to the thundering music it was the most terrific thing that he had ever seen the most terrific thing he stood there his cap on the back of his head his legs apart his mouth open forgetting utterly the crowd thinking nothing of time or danger or punishment he gazed with his whole body as his eyes grew more accustomed to the glare of the hissing gas he saw that in the centre figures were painted standing on the edge of a pillar that revolved without pause 
there was a woman with flaming red cheeks a gold dress and dead white dusty arms a man with a golden crown and a purple robe but a broken nose and a minstrel with a harp the woman and the king moved stiffly their arms up and down that they might strike instruments one a cymbal and the other a drum but it was finally the horses that caught jeremy's heart half of them at least were without riders and the empty ones went round pathetically envying the more successful ones and dancing to the music as though with an effort one especially moved jeremy's sympathy he was a fine horse rather fresher than the others with a coal-black mane and great black bulging eyes his saddle was of gold and his trappings of red as he went around he seemed to catch jeremy's eye and to beg him to come to him he rode more securely than the rest rising nobly like a horse of fine breeding falling again with an implication of restrained force as though he would say i have only to let myself go and there my word you would see where i get to his bold black eyes turned beseechingly to jeremy surely it was not only a trick of the waving gas the boy drew closer and closer never moving his gaze from the horses who had hitherto been whirling at a bacchanalian pace but now as at some sudden secret command suddenly slackened hesitated fell into a gentle jog-trot then scarcely rose scarcely fell were suddenly still jeremy saw what it was that you did if you wanted a ride a stout dirty man came out amongst the horses and resting his hands on their backs as though they were less than nothing to him shouted now's your chance ladies and gents now ladies and gents come along up come along up the ride of your life now a halfpenny a time a halfpenny a time and the finest ride of your life people began to mount the steps that led on to the platform where the horses stood a woman then a man and a boy then two men then two girls giggling together then a man and a girl and the stout fellow shouted come along up come along up now ladies and gents a halfpenny a ride come along up jeremy noticed then that the fine horse with the black mane had stopped close beside him impossible to say whether the horse had indeed intended it or no he was staring now in front of him with the innocent stupid gaze that animals can assume when they do not wish to give themselves away but jeremy could see that he was taking it for granted that jeremy understood the affair if you're such a fool as not to understand he seemed to say well then i don't want you jeremy gazed and the reproach in those eyes was more than he could endure and at any moment someone else might settle himself on that beautiful back there that stupid fat giggling girl no she had moved elsewhere he could endure it no longer and with a thumping heart clutching a scalding penny in a red-hot hand he mounted the steps one ride little gentleman here you are hold on now oh you wants that one do yer eight yar yer pays your money and yer takes your choice he lifted jeremy up put your arms round his neck now it won't bite yer bite him indeed jeremy felt as he clutched the cool head and let his hand slide over the stiff black mane that he knew more about that horse than his owner did he seemed to feel beneath him the horse's response to his clutching knees the head seemed to rise for a moment and nod to him and the eyes to say it's all right i'll look after you i'll give you the best ride of your life he felt indeed that the gaze of the whole world was upon him but he responded to it proudly staring boldly around him as though he had been seated on merry-go-rounds all his days perhaps some in the gaping crowd knew him and were saying why there's the reverend cole's kid never mind he was above scandal from where he was he could see the fair lifted up and translated into a fantastic splendour nothing was certain nothing defined above him a canopy of evening sky with circles and chains of stars mixed with the rosy haze of the flame of the fair opposite him was the palace of the two-headed giant from the caucasus 
a huge man as portrayed in the picture hanging on his outer walls a giant naked save for a bearskin with one head black and one yellow and white protruding teeth in both mouths next to him was the fortune-tellers and outside this a little man with a hump beat a drum then there was the theatre of tragedy and mirth with a poster on one side of the door portraying a lady drowning in the swiftest of rivers but with the prospect of being saved by a stout gentleman who leaned over from the bank and grasped her hair then there was the chamber of the fat lady and the six little dwarfs and the entry to this was guarded by a dirty sour-looking female who gnashed her teeth at a hesitating public before whom with a splendid indifference to appearance she consumed out of a piece of newspaper her evening meal all these things were in jeremy's immediate vision and beyond them was a haze that his eyes could not penetrate it held he knew wild beasts because he could hear quite clearly from time to time the lion and the elephant and the tiger it held music because from somewhere through all the noise and confusion the tune of a band penetrated it held buyers and sellers and treasures and riches and all the inhabitants of the world surely all the world must be here to-night and then beyond the haze there were the silent and mysterious gypsy caravans dark with their little square windows and their coloured walls and their round wheels and the smell of wood-fires and the noise of hissing kettles and horses cropping the grass and around them the still night world with the thick woods and the dark river he did not see it all as he sat on his horse he was as yet too young but he could feel the contrast between the din and glare around him and the silence and dark beyond and afterwards looking back he knew that he had found in that same contrast the very heart of romance as it was he simply clutched his horse's beautiful head and waited for the ride to begin they were off he felt his horse quiver under him he saw the mansions of the two-headed giant and the fat lady slip to the right the light seemed to swing like the skirt of someone's dress upwards across the floor and from the heart of the golden woman and the king and the minstrel a scream burst forth as though they were announcing the end of the world after that he had no clear idea as to what occurred he was swung into space and all the life that had been so stationary the booths the lights the men and women the very stars went swinging with him as though to cheer him on the horse under him galloped before and the faster he galloped the wilder was the music and the dizzier the world he was exultant omnipotent supreme he had long known that this glory was somewhere if it could only be found all his days he seemed to have been searching for it he beat his horse's neck he drove his legs against his sides go on go on go on he cried faster 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 the strangest things seemed to rise to his notice and then fall again a peaked policeman's hat flowers a sudden flame of gas the staring eyes and dead-white arms of the golden woman the flying forms of the horses in front of him all the world was on horseback all the world was racing higher and higher faster and faster he saw someone near him rise on to his horse's back and stand on it waving his arms he would like to have done that but he found that he was part of his horse as though he had been glued to it he shouted he cried aloud he was so happy that he thought of no one and nothing the flame danced about him in a circle he seemed to rise so high that there was a sudden stillness he was in the very heart of the stars then came the supreme moment when as he had always known that one day he would be he was master of the world then like lucifer he fell slowly the stars receded the music slackened people rocked on to their feet again the two-headed giant slipped back once more into his place he saw the sinister lady still devouring her supper women looking up at him gaped his horse gave a last little leap and died 
this marvellous experience he repeated four times and every time with an ecstasy more complete than the last he rushed to a height he fell he rushed again he fell and at every return to a sober life his one intention was instantly to be off on his steed once more he was about to start on his fifth journey he had paid his halfpenny he was sitting forward with his hands on the black mane his eyes staring were filled already with the glory that he knew was coming to him his cheeks were crimson his hat on the back of his head his hair flying he heard a voice quiet and cool and a little below him but very near jeremy jeremy come off that you've got to go home he looked down and saw his uncle samuel four it was all over he knew at once that it was all over as he slipped down from his dear horse he gave the glossy black mane one last pat then with a little sigh he found his feet stumbled over the wooden steps and was at his uncle's side uncle samuel looked queer enough with a squashy black hat a black cloak flung over his shoulders and a large cherry wood pipe in his mouth jeremy looked up at him defiantly well said uncle samuel sarcastically it's nothing to you i suppose that the town crier is at this moment ringing his bell for you up and down the market-place does father know jeremy asked quickly he does answered uncle samuel jeremy cast one last look around the place the merry-go-round was engaged once more upon its wild course the horses rising and falling the golden woman clashing the cymbals the minstrel striking with his dead eyes fixed upon space his harp all about men were shouting the noise of the coconut stores of the circus of the band of the hucksters and the charlatans the crying of children the laughter of women all the noise of the fair bathed jeremy up to his forehead he swam in it for the last time he tried to catch one last glimpse of his coal-black charger then with a sigh he said turning to his uncle i suppose we'd better be going yes i suppose we had said uncle samuel they threaded their way through the fair passed the wooden stile and were once again in the streets dark and ancient under the moon with all the noise and glare behind them jeremy was thinking to himself it doesn't matter what father does or how angry he is that was worth it it was strange how little afraid he was only a year ago to be punished by his father had been a terrible thing now since his mother's illness in the summer his father had seemed to have no influence over him did they bend you or did you just come yourself uncle asked jeremy i happened to be taking the air in that direction said uncle samuel i hope you didn't come away before you wanted to said jeremy politely i did not said his uncle is father very angry asked jeremy it's more than likely he may be the town crier's expensive i didn't think they'd know exclaimed jeremy i meant to get back in time your father didn't go to church said uncle samuel so your sins were quickly discovered jeremy said nothing just as they were climbing orange street he said uncle samuel i think i'll be a horse trainer oh will you well before you train horses you've got to train yourself think of others beside yourself a fine state you've put your mother into to-night jeremy looked distressed she'd know if i was dead someone would come and tell her he said but i'll tell mother i'm sorry but i won't tell father he added why not asked uncle samuel because he'll make such a fuss and i'm not sorry he never told me not to no but you knew you hadn't to i'm very good at obeying exclaimed jeremy if someone says something but if someone doesn't there isn't anyone to obey uncle samuel shook his head you'll be a bit of a prig my son if you aren't careful he said i think it will be splendid to be a horse trainer said jeremy it was a lovely horse to-night and i only spent a shilling i had three and threepence halfpenny at the door of their house uncle samuel stopped and said look here young man 
They say it's time you went to school, and I don't think they're far wrong. There are things wiser heads than yours can understand, and you'd better take their word for it. In the future, if you want to go running off somewhere, you'd better content yourself with my studio and make a mess there. Oh, may I? cried Jeremy, delighted. That studio had been always a forbidden place to them, and had, therefore, its air of enchanting mystery. "'Won't you really mind my coming?' he asked. "'I shall probably hate it,' answered his uncle, "'but there's nothing I wouldn't do for the family.' The boy walked to his father's study and knocked on the door. He did have, then, at the sound of that knock, a moment of panic. The house was so silent, and he knew so well what would follow the opening of the door. And the worst of it was that he was not sorry in the least. He seemed to be indifferent and superior, as though no punishment could touch him. "'Come in,' said his father. He pushed open the door and entered. The scene that followed was grave and sad, and yet, in the end, strangely unimpressive. His father talked too much. As he talked, Jeremy's thought would fly back to the coal-black horse and to that moment when he had seemed to fly into the very heart of the stars. "'Oh, Jeremy, how could you?' said his father. "'Is obedience nothing to you? Do you know how God punishes disobedience? Think what a terrible thing is a disobedient man.' Then, on a lower scale, "'I really don't know what to do with you.' You knew that you were not to go near that wicked place. You never said, interrupted Jeremy. Nonsense. You knew well enough. You will break your mother's heart. I'll tell her I'm sorry, he interrupted quickly. If you are really sorry, said his father. I'm not sorry I went, said Jeremy, but I'm sorry I hurt mother. The end of it was that Jeremy received six strokes on the hand with a ruler. Mr. Cole was not good at this kind of thing, and twice he missed Jeremy's hand altogether, and looked very foolish. It was not an edifying scene. Jeremy left the room, his head high, his spirit obstinate, and his father remained, puzzled, distressed, at a loss, anxious to do what was right, but unable to touch his son at all. Jeremy went up to his room. He opened his window and looked out. He could smell the burnt leaves of the bonfire. There was no flame now, but he fancied that he could see a white shadow where it had been. Then on the wind came the music of the fair. Tum-te-tum, tum-te-tum, whir-whir-whir, hang-bang. Somewhere an owl cried, and then another owl answered. He rubbed his sore hand against his trousers, then thinking of his black horse, he smiled. He was a free man. In a week he would go to school, then he would go to college, then he would be a horse-trainer. He was in bed, faintly into the dark room, stole the scent of the bonfire and the noise of the fair. Tum-te-tum, tum-te-tum. He was asleep, riding on a giant charger across boundless plains. End of chapter 11